everyone. Thanks for checking out the Citizens Podcast. We are the high school student ministry at Maranatha Bible Church, and we meet on Sundays at 11 a.m. in the student wing. If you enjoy this podcast, we would love it if you posted it on your Instagram story and tag at NBC Citizens. Thanks again for joining us and enjoy. We are continuing our series in the book of Acts this morning. And we're going to be looking specifically at chapters 6 and 7 today. Last time we were together, we looked at chapter 5 and we went um, through the book of Acts. Now for, I want to say, four weeks, maybe this is the fifth week, uh, we've been studying what gospel multiplication looks like, how the early church began. And we've spent some time now looking at this church in Jerusalem. Right? As I've talked about before, this book really is broken down into these three sections. And they're based around this key theme of verse in chapter 1. It's verse 8. Right? As we're called to be witnesses of Jesus, as he tells his followers that there will be a Holy Spirit right, that will come down and empower them to do that, he challenges them to go into Jerusalem And that's the first section of this text. And then he goes into saying Judea and Samaria and then the rest of the world. Today, as we look at chapter 6 and 7, we'll see the conclusion of this first section in Jerusalem and see what happens for the gospel that then go beyond those areas. What started that? What was the reason and the purpose for that being? Uh, As we were just discussing earlier, we had talked about chapter uh, 5 last week, and we talked about a a certain couple, right, Ananias and Sapphira, and we talked about how he had seen and witnessed Barnabas, who was a follower of God, come and bring his earnings to the apostles. And he brought what he had made after selling his land, and having done that, obviously this was something that was celebrated. Ananias sees this and comes up with a plan. He says, you know what, I'm going to do the same thing. And yet, before he goes and brings these earnings to the apostles, he then decides to change plans, or he decided that he wasn't going to give everything. And yet the problem was not that in of itself, that he chose not to give everything. It was the fact that he decided to tell that he was going to give everything anyways. And so he goes and he brings forth these earnings and he says, yeah, this is everything I have. And Peter, he knows that he is lying and he calls him out on his hypocrisy. And this is what we talked about last week, right? This big key theme that we talked about last week was hypocrisy, something that we see and that is inevitable, right, within even the church, right? We see it time and time again. And sometimes and a lot of times we are also guilty of this. We talked about the ways to combat against uh, hypocrisy. The first one being that we need to remember the gospel. We need to remember what the gospel says about ourselves. That we are broken. That we are sinners. That we need grace. That we are in desperate need of the Holy Spirit, of salvation. And yet a lot of the times what happens with, with hypocrisy is that we forget that. And we start to play pretend, act better than we are. And yet we know, and everybody knows that we are sinners. 
The, the cross, it outs us, right? It, it exposes that we are sinners. And yet we try to pretend and we try to act like we're not. Like we're perfect people and that we don't struggle and yet we do. We don't just have to remember the gospel, however. We also need to find community. That's the next thing in order to combat against hypocrisy. And that dovetailed perfectly with what we were talking about with D groups last week as we're going to be starting this, right? D groups is just a way of seeing that out. It's a way and a place where we can have this kind of community. But wherever it is that you find it, the point is in order to combat hypocrisy, we need to have people around us. People that aren't going to buy in and, and egg us on and encourage us to lie and to scheme up these lies, but they're going to out us. They are going to expose the sin in our lives. They are going to challenge us. They're going to hold us accountable and vice versa. We can hold others accountable. Right? How can we care for somebody if there is no idea or no, no knowledge that this person is struggling? We may know that you are, but how can we know how to pray, how to encourage you if you keep this to yourself? Remember again, as we said last week, privacy, keeping things to yourself is not helpful and it does not aid you in your own faith. And in the time where you seclude yourself, you isolate yourself, and you don't spend time looking for these people, identifying people that you can be open and honest with, if you don't have people like that in your life, you're just going to continue to seek deeper and deeper into this sin, and you're not going to have anybody that can help you and encourage you and pull you out of those situations. And so the D groups that we have, they're designed for that purpose, to help you grow in your faith, but also give you a platform and a place to help your neighbor grow the people that you care about and love. That's the, the plan, and that's the way that we expose and get rid of the hypocrisy in our lives. It's to remember the gospel, remember who Jesus is and what he has done for you and what the reality is about your life, and find help, find a community of believers that are on the same journey as you, that you can help one another. That's how we expose hypocrisy, where we don't play pretend that we are honest and vulnerable and transparent. Today, we're going to continue on in the book of Acts, but we're going to move past chapter 5, and we're going to look at chapter 6. There's a lot that we're going to cover today, and so I'll have some verses on the screen, but you can follow along in your Bibles as well. This is a long piece of text that we're going to be looking at in chapter 7. It's actually the longest sermon that we see. We talked about two other sermons before where Peter, he, he, he talks about the gospel, right? He gives his first two Christian messages, and he talks at the day of Pentecost, and he also gives a sermon at this um, courtroom, right, where he is before the council after he healed this lame beggar. He presents the gospel to these people as well. We see a similar situation here happening in chapter 7. And this is a very long history class almost, if you want to say. But I want to cover what the big ideas are here and then touch on this specific individual um, this morning. The person that we're going to be talking about this morning is Stephen. You might be familiar with him. But as we talk about him, one of the big questions that I want to have this morning for you and let you think about these questions. Think about your life. Think about what you live for. And ask yourself, what is that? What is it that you are living for? Each of us, we have a story, we have a vision for our lives, we, we have plans for our lives. But let me ask you this morning, what is driving your life? What is the thing that sets you on that course? What is 
the thing that shapes your life? What is the Lord of your life? Who is the Lord of your life? When you're communicating your story, when you're meeting somebody, I meet new faces here every Sunday morning. But when you meet somebody, think about when you're getting to know somebody for the first time, what are some things or what is the thing that you have to make sure that that person knows about you? What is it that is super important that you identify with, right, that it's vital or it's something that you naturally associate yourself with every time you introduce yourself to somebody? What is that one thing? What is the one thing that you find it so important to tell others about yourself? But what about when you're alone? When you're alone by yourself, what is it that you think of? What's running through your mind? What are you most proud of in your life? Is there something in your life or someone in your life that if you lost that thing, you wouldn't know what to do with yourself? Maybe you even wouldn't want to live. Do you have something like that in your life? When things get difficult, where do you run? These are questions that I want us to think about today as we look at the life of this man, Stephen. There's a quote, and you can go to the next slide here. It'll be on the screen, but I do want to share it with you. It's from Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says this, The true Lord of your life, the driving narrative and the story that you're living out of, is anything that holds such a controlling position in your life or mind that it moves, that it arouses and attracts us so easily that we give it our time, attention, energy, and money to it effortlessly effortlessly. We don't even think about it. In Acts chapter 6 and 7, we see the testimony of Stephen. And Stephen here is going to portray a beautiful witness of the one Lord that is in fact worth living for. And even as we'll see, dying for. It gives us a good idea here um, in, in verse 7 of chapter 6 of the things that are happening following the events that we recently talked about in chapter 5. In verse 7 of chapter 6, this is where we kind of leave off. Um, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and the great many of the priests came, became obedient to the faith. Again, as I mentioned earlier, we see here the big idea of this book that is gospel-centered multiplication. And that is happening here in the church of Jerusalem. And then we turn to verse 8, where Luke, who again is the author of this book, he is a physician, a companion to the apostle Paul. And he is writing this. Again, he is also the author of the gospel of Luke. As I mentioned before, this flows seamlessly right after that gospel. Acts picks up right after it and starts to talk about the events that happen afterwards. And anyways, he introduces us again or draws us back to uh, Stephen, right? He quickly introduces him in chapter 6 earlier on, but he again brings our attention, very intentionally so, to Stephen here. And why is Stephen so important? Why does he talk about Stephen? Why does he list out his entire sermon, right? Why is it so important to address him? And hopefully we'll see that this morning. And it'll start to make a little bit more sense. As I mentioned before, he briefly introduces Stephen as he talks about in chapter 6 where things are getting 
kind of out of hand. The, the apostles don't have control over the, the entirety of the people of, of Jesus. They can't meet every need, essentially, right? There is needs that need to be met, and specifically in this situation, it is support for widows, and they can't provide that themselves. They can't not that they weren't willing to do it. It was just not possible for them. Since they were tasked with so many different obligations, they needed more help. And what a wonderful opportunity, right, when there is a need to bring more people into the ministry, and that's exactly what they do. They look for uh, several men, right? These apostles, they appoint seven deacons, right? That's not the word that is explicitly used here in the text, but we know and we can surmise that these are what these men were. Deacons just means a servant, and they fulfilled this role, right? They, they had to be of good reputation. They had to be men who are full of the Holy Spirit, right? Like the apostles, and like Stephen will be later on described again as. But these men had to be men of wisdom, essentially men who were spiritually uh, minded and practically minded. And Stephen was one of these seven guys who helped support the needs of these Hellenist widows at the time. And so he was already involved in the ministry. Again, this is important because this is a guy who was well-known, who was respected, wise. People knew who he was. He had good reputation. And then again, we see here in verse 8 that apart from this, where the Lord then takes him next. What starts to happen in his life? You see in verse 8, we're introduced to him again. We're, we're now getting into the life of Stephen. And if you know who Stephen is, um, I don't want to spoil anything for you, but there's a good chance that most of you do know. He is the first Christian martyr. Stephen, being the first Christian martyr, means this. He is the first individual, the first person to die for the gospel to die for the faith, his beliefs. And his life, as we'll see, is pivotal. It's essential in the narrative of the book of Acts because his blood, his death, is what then catapults the church into these different parts of the world. It's what pushes the gospel forward. His death, right, the persecution that happens to him is what then drives the gospel into these different nations. And so again, in verse 8, we see here, he is a man full of grace and power, uh, meaning essentially this, that he is full of the Spirit, right? And the Spirit is what enables him to do these things. It's what enables him. When it says he's full of power, it's because of the Holy Spirit that is in him. We see that in, in chapter 1, verse 8, correct, where, where Jesus says that there is a coming uh, uh, power that will be sent through the Holy Spirit and that will enable you to be witnesses. So we see that he is full of the Holy Spirit here as we can, refer, uh, we can reference verse 8 of chapter 1, but it also says here that he is full of grace. Um, full of grace meaning that he has both the desire and ability to do the will of God. And what's interesting here is that we see that he is doing great wonders. He is doing these miraculous things. So he's not just helping with these widows, but now he's actually doing things like Peter and John, right? When he healed, as we talked about a few weeks ago, when he healed this lame beggar that stood at the front of the temple, right? He is doing similar things. He is healing people. God is healing people through him, and he is doing miraculous things. And of course, what happened then? 
these miracles drew attention of people and they drew the attention of the people that were in charge, these religious leaders. And we know they didn't like that before, so there's a good chance they still don't like that happening now. They try to prevent that from continuing, and we, they see here that they did not accomplish that. And so, because he is doing these things, this commotion starts to happen, and naturally, opposition, it starts to arise against Stephen. And we read in verse 9, it says this, Then some of those who belong in the synagogue of the freedmen and of the Cyrenians uh, and the Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Again, he is similar to Peter here. He is being accused and they're talking to him, but they, they can't argue against him. He's, not, I don't want to say outclassing, but he is speaking in a way that they can't keep up. Right? They can't refute the things that he is saying. And so he continues here in verse 11. Luke says, Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Now this is the difference between the story of Peter and now the story of Stephen. As before where they had to let him go because there was nothing that they can prove against Peter and John. They couldn't hold them captive. Now what they're like, okay, well, that didn't work. This time, let's do something a little bit different. What they do now is actually, instead of just releasing Stephen, they see something that is very prevalent today, or people tend to do. What they did was they lied. They came up with a, a, a whole story to make sure that people knew that he was speaking blasphemously about Moses and God, when in reality he wasn't. But the only way to accuse him and, and bring repercussion to him, to, to stop him from doing what he was doing, was to lie about what he had said. And so, knowing that him speaking blasphemously about Moses and God, knowing that this would cause commotion, they decided to go out with this plan. And of course, we see in verse 11 or verse 12 what happens. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. Right, if you're going to say these things, we're going to bring you in. You can't keep doing this. And so they bring him in. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against the holy place and the law, the temple and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So again, these religious leaders, um, they are pretty obvious to the true meaning of the law of Moses. They have tacked on this thick layer of their own traditions and their practices over it. But this Hanhedrin, right, which is the Supreme Court, essentially, of that time, it's with the Jewish leaders, it was run by the high priests. They, they bring him in because they knew, again, that these Pharisaic Jews, right, they would be totally against what he was accused of, to speak blasphemously about the temple, to speak this way about God, to speak about the law this way. They lied so that they could discredit him. 
And yet as he's standing there, and right before we get into his own rebuttal, right, they're accusing him of these things, lying as we see false witness. They look at him, and they see as they're gazing at him, his face was like an angel. And that's so interesting. It's a beautiful picture here that they're lying, saying these things about him, saying that he's, an, he, he's a, a blasphemer, and yet when they look at him, they see more or less what looks like the very clear approval of Jesus, approval of God for this man. You know, we can't speculate. It really is just speculation. You can't say for a fact what this was, but this is similar to what we see in Exodus chapter 24 when Moses' face um, you know, had this divine glory to it as well. But what is interesting here and what is, uh, what is fascinating is that uh, this, was, this was written down, right? They made a note of this. And Luke's biggest resource for all of this would have been Paul. And Paul, who was from Cilicia, must, uh, must have probably, perhaps been, definitely was, as we'll see later on, been in attendance at this council and he notices this. He can see it himself. This is something that impacted him. There was something to him. There was something to his face. And Paul at the time had no reason to believe this. Paul had no reason to care for this because he, was self, he himself was somebody who persecuted believers. He was totally against the incarnation of Christ. He didn't believe in it. He was a Pharisee himself. And yet he writes this down. And he was, he was I mean seeing that impacted by this man. Not wanting anything to do with him, he still was impacted by Stephen. And this is interesting for us to know, right? That even those who are totally against uh, the faith and those that were directly opposed to it, even they can't refute this man's uh, testimony. And they see Stephen and standing there now having been accused of different things, having been accused of speaking against God in a blasphemous way, against the law and the temple. Now, very similar to what Jesus was accused of. We'll get into that a little bit more, but this is very akin to what Jesus stood before these same people and had to defend himself against. We see that in this scenario, as he is asked, now flipping over to chapter 7, when the high priest turns to him and says, are these things so? He gives this brilliant response. He goes into this really long sermon. Right? He knew he was standing before a hostile court. He knew that whatever he said, they were going to try to judge and, and nitpick. Right? Have you ever stood before people and you know that whatever you say, they're just going to judge you? They're just going to dismiss everything that you say. No matter what you say, you know they don't care. They're not listening to what you have to say. I know that you might have experienced something like this. This is similar to what he's probably thinking. Regardless of what I say, if I mention certain things, they're not going to listen to me. And so he knew that he had to orchestrate this in a particular way in order for them to actually listen to the things that he said. And so he's, he's fashioning his statement in a particular order. First, the things that he says, um, right, uh, he says in verses 2 to 8, he talks about the history of Abraham, right? So he starts to talk about things that they would also believe, things that they would respect, right? Things that they cared about. He's saying things knowing that they would hear him out. But secondly, he also had to make very clear that there was a problem. 
And it was not with his own view of the law and of the temple, but it was in theirs. And so what he tries to do for the next couple of verses here is he starts to give this history of Israel. He goes from verse 9 to verse 19 in chapter 7 in talking about Joseph. And then he talks about his exile in Egypt. As you look at verses 20 through 43 in chapter 7 still, we see that in this section, he now accounts Moses' mistreatment from his own brethren. So the people um, that were of the Jewish descendants, his own people did not accept Moses. And this is, um, of course, the longest section of this defense because this is what he is being accused of himself, right? He is being accused of speaking against Moses, speaking against the law of Moses. And as we get into verses uh, 44, we look at verses 44 to verse 50, he recounts this period where Israel's history um, is talking about the tabernacle being the sanctuary. Um, He ends with a spiritual citation uh, that is, uh, put the, that has been putting the temple in its proper place. And in conclusion, again, this is an overview of what he is saying because there's a lot going on here. In verses 51 to 53, he finally drives in his point. He finally makes it very clear. And if you're familiar with the story of Israel, they would have been as well. Uh, but we see time and time again that these people rejected God. We see time and time again that they were spiritually rebellious. And his point was, look at your forefathers. Look at how they continuously rebelled. Nothing has changed. It is still that same way today. You can't argue with history. Look at history. Look at the things that you hold so true. Look at time and time again how they have rebelled. Your rejection, your murder of Jesus is the consummation of their rebellion against God. Finally, here in this section here at the end, he confronts them. And again, like I said, these were biblically literate men. These are men who are, of course, the the high priests, the people that are in charge, religious leaders. So these religious leaders know their stuff. Sometimes I talk about things where I'll mention stuff from Scripture. You may or may not be super familiar with it. But these men knew these first chapters of the Bible, the Pentateuch, they knew this. They had it memorized. They, they understood this. And so as he's referring to these things, as he's talking about history, they know this to be true. There's no denying it. And so when he uses even words like he does, stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart, these terms, they know and they associate that with rebellion. So when he calls them that, they don't, they don't take too nicely to it. What he does here is he talks about everything that he is accused of by accounting their story of salvation. And by doing so, he points to his accusers and tells them and and insinuates that they have misunderstood their own story. He says, I know your story better than you know your own story. You know why? Because I understand and know who Jesus is. Because I know Jesus. Because Moses, he pointed to Jesus. And he fulfilled 
the law. You see that in verse 37. He talks about how Jesus' people are the true temple of God in verse 48. He was living in accord to the story of Israel, and these leaders were not. And essentially, this is the big idea here for us, and what I want us to be challenged by this morning, the truth of this or his words are still very relevant for us to understand today. Whatever story you're living for, it is incomplete without Jesus at the center of it. Whatever it is that you are living for, those questions that I asked earlier, whatever your answer was, Whatever the truth is about your life, if it is not Jesus who is at the center of it, it is misshaped. And the responsibility of us here as a church is to keep Jesus at the center of our lives. That is our duty. Not just for our own lives, but this is why we meet together, because we are to challenge and encourage one another to keep doing the same. Our relationships should be centered around Christ. Is he the Lord of your life? Is he your Lord? Is he the answer to what we have asked earlier? A lot of the times, sometimes we can't even see that ourselves, and that's why we need other people. That's why we need to be reminded that the story and purpose that we were created for doesn't have us at the center of it. The, the, the reason you were created was not to have relationships be at the center of your life, your friends to be at the center of your life, your talents to be at the center of your life. All of those things, if that is what you're living for, it's gonna be misshaped. You're gonna be empty. You're not gonna be satisfied and you're not going to be fulfilled. The only thing worth living for and dying for, as Stephen would say, is Jesus. And again, as he makes this argument, these arguments are irrefutable. Even they understand these things to be true. And yet when he calls them out, when he shares with them, right, and, and, and identifies that they have been guilty of the same rebellion as their forefathers, he's not just trying to accuse them. He's not trying to point their, his finger at them and be like, hey, look at you. Again, you're wrong. You're wrong. And accuse them and, and make them feel bad and inflate his own ego. That's not at all what he's doing. He's doing exactly what Peter did. He's ending his sermon with an invitation, with the call to repentance. As we have seen so many people, again, in these previous sermons, in these previous uh, chapters here, come to Jesus, he's calling them to turn from this rebellion. Hey, don't follow the steps of your forefathers. The, the rebellious spirit they had, don't do the same thing. Turn to Jesus. He did not want them to miss this. He's not motivated by his own life, right? If he wanted to stay alive, he didn't have to say this. He could have just said what they wanted to hear. But yet he confronts them with the truth because he was what? He was doing what Acts chapter 1 verse 8 says, to bear witness of Christ. He was living for Jesus. And he gets to Jesus at the very end. And as soon as he does, they cut him off. <laughs> just like he expected them to, most likely. As we continue to read, it says that when they heard these things, in verse 35, oh, 54, it says, they were enraged and they grounded their teeth at him. 
says they were cut to the heart in some translations. These council, th this council was angry at this message that they could not dismiss or ignore what, they, what he had said. And yet, instead of rejecting, uh, instead of turning from their sin, except, accepting this call to repentance, they rejected once more the submission to the Holy Spirit. And it says here, but he, full of the Spirit, gazed into heaven. These are his final moments. He gazed up and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand. Again, what a beautiful picture of God awaiting him, accepting him. Again, this is a picture of Jesus being just, right, as the judge over his life, standing by the Father and saying, welcome. He's not just a just God, a welcoming God, but he's a compassionate God. He is there, and he sees him, and he comforts him. And again, when they hear this, when they say, when he says these things, it says, but they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears and rushed at him. Again, these are old men. These are wise guys, older men, part of a Sanhedrin. Imagine seeing judge, a judge running towards you, putting his finger in your ear and going, la, 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 la. You've done that as a kid, right? You've covered your ears and yelled out stuff so you wouldn't hear what the other person was saying. This is how immature and unsensical they're acting, right? They don't want to hear the things that he's saying, so they're covering their ears, rushing at him, this angry mob, and they take him take him outside of the city and in verse 58 we see that they stoned him and they had different ways of stoning people St ways that were a little bit more cleaner efficient that were more humane this was not that this was an angry mob seeking to kill this man they gave him a brutal death that's what this was and again as we get to the end here we'll continue to see how this became the catalyst for what happens and how this affected one man in particular, Paul, who was Saul at the time, who was not a believer. But again, he remembers this moment where they laid these garments, right? All that were witnessed laid these garments before Saul, this young man, it says. By young man, it means this is a man in his prime. He accepted and supervised what was happening here. He approved of this execution. Stephen, again, he models for us what it looks like to live a life for Christ. And he's not the true hero of the story. The true hero is Jesus. All that Stephen is doing here is modeling the life that Jesus lived. Far before Stephen, Jesus was also filled with the Spirit. Jesus was also accused of blasphemy before God. Jesus was also given an unjust trial, and yet he refuted those that accused him with power and wisdom. Jesus was also executed in a very brutal manner, even worse than this, crucifixion. And Jesus also prayed for those who murdered him while he died. Stephen is simply following the example that Jesus sets for us. His life is to reflect Jesus, to do what Jesus called him to do, to be witnesses of Jesus. And the last thing I'll say this morning is, what about you? In what ways does your life look like Jesus? And I want you to be real with yourself. Think about what ways does my life actually look like the life of Jesus? Because as Christians, what does a Christian mean? It means to be a little Christ, right? It means to be a follower of Jesus. It means to look like him, to be different from the world. But ask yourself this morning, how does my life actually look different than everybody else's? 
Can you name something? And I'm not just saying, oh, I go to church. These people were the religious leaders of the time. They were probably the people that they looked up to. And so they did everything that was seemingly right on the outside, but how is your heart? When you're here, are you here because you want to be? Are you learning? Are you growing? Do you, do you care for the relationship that you have with God? What are ways that your life looks like Jesus? Because if we are called to be models of Christ, if we are called to be followers of Christ, to resemble him and to reflect him to the world, then we have to be honest and ask ourselves, are we doing that? If you have a relationship with Jesus, that is your responsibility. And if you don't, that invitation that he had for the people there, the leaders, to turn from their sin, that extends to you today. And if you don't know Christ, there is sin in your life. There is a, there is a God in your life, an idol and, and, and a Lord in your life that is not Jesus. It's not worth it. He's the only one that will fulfill and will satisfy the life you were, li- you were made to live because you were made to be in communion and relationship with God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you again for this time. Thank you for the opportunity to open up your word, to see the example of Stephen, to be challenged and encouraged by a man who was a witness of Christ, who lived for you, who knew that living for you was better than anything this life could ever possibly offer. That your love was better than even life itself. Thank you again for these students. I pray, Lord, that everybody here would be encouraged by his testimony. But remember again that he is just following after Jesus Christ, who is the real hero of our lives. I pray, Lord, that as we go on today, we would have a great rest of the day, and we would grow closer to you. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.